0: I'm Joan Hogan, welcoming you to the Prairie Doc radio program. Rick Holm, our Prairie Doc, is here with us, ready to answer your questions of a medical nature. Dr. Holm's specialty is internal medicine. He's a primary care physician with the Avira Medical Group Brookings, and he's also a clinical professor at the University of South Dakota's Sanford School of Medicine. It's good to have Dr. Holm here as well as our guests. But before I mention our guest, I do want to remind our listeners that they can live stream both the audio and video of our program on their computer. If you'd like, you can go to prairiedoc.org, pull up the page and choose radio from a list at the top of the page then you'll see the arrow pointing to our program today. If you'd like to watch previous programs, they're also listed there. So enough for how you can find us. If you're listening now, you're just enjoying it on the radio. We're glad you are. Dr. Holm is here and his guest today is Dr. David Graper. Dr. Graper, welcome to the program. Thank you very much.
1: I'm glad to be here. Nice to have you here. For those who
0: don't know who Dr. Graper is, he is a professor of horticulture at South Dakota State University. He was the director of Macquarie Gardens for many years and is now the South Dakota Master Gardener Coordinator.
2: Master Gardener.
0: Isn't it something? I love
2: that. That's a a neat name, actually. I love it. uh, And are you really a gardener? Oh, yes. I'm a pretty avid gardener. I
1: like to do vegetable gardening as well as flowers and perennials and trees and whatever I can get my ha- green hands on.
2: So. Right. And, and of course, you know, the reason that we have uh, in- included you in the, in the show today is because this is the allergic season. And right. we've, we've uh, you know, everything allergy. Tomorrow night is, uh, of course, it's not so allergic right now with all the rain. <laughs> but when the rain isn't k- bringing down the pollen the trees are really spreading out the stuff right now
1: yep that's and one uh, of my favorite times of year to see things starting to green up again oh. but, but as you say those flower buds are about ready to pop and that's when the pollen's going to be dispersed everywhere
2: so is this the i mean they, they they talk about trees being the first things to come out and then there's the uh grass pollens and then there's the weed pollen at the mm-hmm. end of the summer Right. Uh, What's the worst for people?
1: Well, it's going to depend on the individual, and you probably know more about this than, than I do, but different individuals have allergies to different kinds or types of pollen, and there's also mold spores that can be a problem for some folks, so sometimes early in the spring it might be mold spores that might be affecting folks, but the tree pollen season is just about upon us. We've had a few trees that have already bloomed and released their pollen, but We're getting into the mainstream of pollen production here in the next few weeks, and that's when people that are allergic to that kind of pollen are probably going to suffer the most.
2: Okay. Joan, you want to take that first break? Well, I break. think we
0: should take our first break. We're happy to have you listening today. And I have a feeling that they're, when they hear that David's here, we may have some questions on what's going to happen to things that have already sprouted if we have snow sitting on top of them, that dirty word again, Bob. But whatever questions you might have, give us a call at 692-1430, and we'll be back right after these words. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. We're happy to have you listening today. Dr. Rick Holm is here, ready to answer any questions you might have of a medical nature. And our guest today, most welcome guest, is David Graper, who's a professor of horticulture at South Dakota State University.
2: It's just great to see you. Let's talk about snowmole. That's something I've learned about uh, over the last couple of years. I really didn't know about it. I just saw that there were patches, patches of discoloration on the snow. You know, South Dakota mm-hmm. snow kind of stays all winter most years. Uh, what What is it?
1: Well, there's a couple different kinds of fungi that actually cause snow mold, and it's not that we're that worried about it being mold on the snow. It's that it's usually mold on our lawn grasses, and that's where the, the mold actually is able to reproduce and produce those spores that can get up in the air in the spring after the snow melts and things start drying out. We get those spring winds that we usually get, and that blows those spores around everywhere, and that's when people really start suffering from that. Typically, it doesn't last very long, maybe only a couple weeks, and then things dry out, and the grass starts to grow more, and the mold kind of goes away. But there can be a period in the spring when people can be really bothered by it.
2: Does it kill the grass underneath it? it? can kill the grass.
1: So if you notice where you might have had a snow drift, that's often where you will see it. Uh, you're going to see often small circular spots that died out, or it can be those spots merged together. We have bigger areas that are dead, so you're going to have to break those out and today would be a wonderful day to get some grass seed out if you could do it in between rain showers to kind of fill in those grassy areas again with some fresh grass plants.
2: Wow but uh, if you threw the grass and uh, seed in the air it would spread on your neighbor's lawn. That's I right. I, <laughs> I walked from cook's kitchen this morning. Is it a little windy? Fortunately I had a uh, <laughs> a uh, an umbrella to hold off the wind and the rain blowing right at <laughs> me, I mean, it soaked my legs, but it didn't get my face or my computer on my backpack. So uh, okay. it was unwise to walk down. It was dry when I walked down there. Mm-hmm, yeah, <laughs> it was just
1: terrible. It can time. change any moment. <laughs> oh gosh.
2: Well, uh, the the trees. People don't realize that tree pollen, uh, particularly in the spring, is such a big deal. And it, does it depend upon the tree? I mean, people have different kinds of tree allergies, don't right. they? Right. Yeah.
1: Certainly, different kinds of trees produce pollen that might have produce different kinds of allergic responses in different individuals, depending on what kind of specific allergy that person has. And another kind of a caveat that comes into that: a lot of people like to have seedless trees. They don't want ash trees that produce seed, or we can't plant cottonwoods that produce seed. So that means we're planting male trees that have pollen. And they produce the pollen. So <laughs> we don't end up with the seeds, but we do get the pollen. So
2: oh, that's an It's got of one
1: or the other that you're going to end up dealing with. Either you rake up some of the seeds in the fall, or you deal with sneezing in the spring when they're in bloom. So
2: I've, I have never realized that. I've, I've, I have heard about uh, seedless uh, ash trees mm-hmm. my whole life. I, I thought How they do you were know
0: t- if it's a male or a female? If it's a tree.
1: You really can't tell by looking at a tree if it's just one that came up from seed until it blooms. And then you can see if it produces uh, male flowers or female flowers. If you buy a named cultivar, if you go to a nursery or garden center, it's going to probably say this is a seedless variety. But typically, if it's a named variety, it's going to be a, a seedless, which means that it is a male or a female, or a male plant, so it's actually kind of a little sex discrimination there in the nursery industry, but it's those folks that don't want those messy fruit, and unfortunately, then you get the pollen to contend with.
0: I had no idea there were male and female trees. Yeah, but
1: well, it's not for everything. Uh, there are some <laughs> trees that have both male and female flowers on the same tree, but Ash and honey locust, for example, are a couple trees that are male or female. That's interesting.
2: Yeah. Now we don't want to make a metaphor about male and female trees versus the human uh, form of things.
0: But you're working on it.
2: I I would rather (laughs) (laughs) just make a hint of a joke there. That's pretty good. So let let the um, the major tree that we have in this area. Now let's just talk about our area. You know, because of course trees that are in volga and trees that are in aurora are in my yard (laughs) and Mm -hmm. in my air right so what in this area are the major trees that we have
1: well probably one of the biggest ones are the is the green ash and other types of ash trees those are probably one of the most common Uh, we also have quite a few different uh, areas where people plant a lot of silver maples or some of the new hybrid maples that are out there uh, those are some of the earlier trees to bloom so we're starting to see some of those coming out right now uh, if you look at some of the branches you'll see some of those little flower clusters coming out so if you're affected by those kinds of pollen you're probably going to start having the symptoms of being in allergy season very soon
2: and I, I will ha- I'm going to do this for the uh, for people who are listening who have medical problems that I indeed are one of you who are allergic to, I believe, the trees. I I don't think it's a snow mold. I think it is the trees Mm -hmm. because uh, we like the windows open at night. Of course, that's a mistake if you have bad allergies. And, uh, you know, a couple days of the year or a week or two of the spring, boy, I really, and I don't get runny nose. I get dry sore, miserable, thick mucus, crappy uh, nose. And what I have been able to do is uh, there are two options. One uh, is the -the over-the-counter or even prescription uh, nasal cort or uh, steroid nasal sprays. Uh, I used to use them a lot more than I do now. I don't believe they're the greatest thing in the world because they do... They're steroids. I mean, and it's like you—you you cause some atrophy of whatever is going on when you're using too much steroids. The other is the antihistamines. Uh, Benadryl is thought to be the best one because it's most—it's so fast and it's so effective. The answer is it's no better as an antihistamine than uh, than the long-acting. Uh, Claritin or Allegra or Zyrtec or the bre- or the generic versions of those. I like the generic versions, but that's these are the ones that we can identify. So I like, and I'm going to suggest morning Allegra or nighttime Zyrtec or both if you're really sick from it, and a steroid nasal spray or maybe just a saltwater nasal spray. Dave, you have anything to add to that?
1: Unfortunately, or luckily, I don't have too many allergy problems as of yet. I think that is something that can develop over time, is that right?
2: Right. I mean, you a person may not be allergic their whole life until one day they're exposed just enough for them to be sensitized. And it may happen later in life. I mean, you know, you can, you can say, I've never had allergies, therefore I don't have allergies, it must be a bacterial infection. Not true. We can all be sensitized one time. I was
0: surprised when I developed allergies because I never had them. I just thought people with allergies it was all in their head. That's my (laughs) reward for thinking that because once they developed, somewhere in my mid 40s or 50s, oh my goodness, I really had allergies, but none before that. Took you a while to discover
2: it too, didn't it?
0: Yes, wasn't quite sure of it. Well, you know what? Story over the years. Oh, it's a boring story. Okay, Uh, but we are due to take a break. We'll take a break. We'll be back right after these words. Hi, welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. We're happy to have you listening. Uh, both Dr. Holm and I are here, and our guest in the studio is David Graper. And David, Dr. Holm just got a call, so he's going to be back in one second. Um, he is a doctor. You know, we've got to take care of his patients as well. And one of the calls that came into the studio that I'll ask Dr. Holm, people are worried about him retiring. You know, he is retiring, <laughs> and uh, one call, I wanted to know if Katie Jones, who's at the clinic, will still be available, so we'll ask that, that of Dr. Holm when he comes back in. But in his absence, Dr. Graber and I were talking about how we developed allergies, and we just didn't have them young in life, but now you have allergy to poison ivy, right? Mm-hmm. And yep. never had that before.
1: I never had it before until I made a m- silly mistake one day I was collecting what I thought were some interesting looking Three twigs. Three leaves? <laughs> well, this was during the wintertime. F- the wintertime, the, winter the twigs, yeah. And I had little white berries on them, and I didn't click. <laughs> and I thought, well, these are kind of neat. I'll use these in a dried arrangement. And I collected them and put them on my arm. And about two hours later, it's like, uh-oh, I've got oh. this scratch. <laughs> and it's like, oh, you idiot. That was, that was poison ivy. And oh. now I've got to really watch out for it, because I don't have to have much exposure to it, and I break
2: out pretty quickly. If you just say the word poison ivy too loud. You know, you can get a little itchy. No question about it, people get sensitized. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, Dr. Holm, we're on a different topic now. We did have a couple of calls come in, Okay. and uh, we thought the first we should answer is one of your listeners, they are a little worried about you retiring now. You know that. But this must be one of your (coughs) patients and wants to know if Katie Jones will still be available after you retire. Yes, she will. Who is Katie?
2: Katie was a nurse practitioner that worked with me for many years and for several years. And she's now working under uh, the, the supervision of Dr. Cecil, and uh, so she's great.
0: She definitely, she's a nurse practitioner, still available to mm-hmm. everyone there, that th- needs right. her. Okay. So there are, s-
2: there are two other nurse practitioners, and there are uh, three d- doctors available, uh, uh, Dr. Cruz, Dr. Momberg, Dr. Williamson, uh, and we'll have a new internist coming in town, Dr. Evans. And so those are part of the reasons, I think, that they were saying to me, why don't you go into an educational role rather than stay <laughs> as a practitioner? We need room for these young doctors. That's it. Right? And I think it's right, too. Yes. I think, you know, there's a time. I'm not going to quit. I'll be working as uh, in a program that you, the listener, will hear a lot more about later because we're going to be looking to try to um, prove that strengthening will prevent falling. And the danger uh, for... People who are overweight or people who are um, uh, older are at risk of falling and fractured hips and all the consequences of falling. So if we can prevent falling, and our study will involve strengthening.
0: Well, uh, it'll be interesting to have scientific basis for your belief that strengthening yeah. will do it, and you'll have that. We had another medical question come in from one of our listeners, and would l- the listener would like to know what do you do with old medications? How do you get rid of them?
2: They used to say, flush them down the toilet. And I've heard that also again lately, but I don't believe it. I don't like the idea of flushing it into our our, uh, water system. Some of the stuff that's in there are very powerful stuff. Antibiotics in particular. I don't like antibiotics in our our water system. The better way is to dump them into your garbage and let them go into the solid um, waste. Uh, some p- say that well, people can dig it out then and then and abuse it if it's a narcotic, for example. But if you dump it into your uh, coffee grounds or the uh, the leftover goulash, then I think you're probably pretty safe.
0: <laughs> I think so too. And it <laughs> will go into the landfill and be many Dave, years do you before have any it's dispersed.
2: <laughs> you're a horticulturist.
1: Well, certainly the antibiotics getting into the environment is a concern. We see that right. in uh, a lot of the food that we eat, and concerns about. Uh, resistance of some of the pathogens that are out there because there are these antibiotics out there and it's not just human disease it's also plant and animal disease that we have to be concerned about.
2: So now you're a horticulturist let's just run a little bit off on to the question of uh, as long as we're talking about antibiotics and resistance and specialization of different Mm -hmm. organisms. What about uh, genetic manipulation? of the environment. I know we've been doing it since we've figured out that peas, you know, you take and you cross the peas, and we've been doing manipulation of genetics right. since the beginning, and we, we would have nothing uh, but just some wild plants and that's it had we not developed genetic manipulation. Now we're able to do it even more mm-hmm. powerfully in the laboratory. Is that right. a good or a bad thing?
1: Well, I guess a good answer is it depends. Uh, There are certainly examples of where, uh, for example, the papaya industry, I think it's in Hawaii, essentially was being wiped out by a virus that was attacking the single variety of papaya that they were growing there, and everybody was growing that papaya. Well, through some genetic engineering, they were able to take a piece of the DNA of that virus and incorporate it into the DNA of that papaya, and that papaya is now immune to that virus. So it saved the industry and saved, uh, you know, that all those people that would have been producing those now can continue to produce papayas. And that's a disease that is spreading around the world. We see similar things happening with other kinds of Bananas. Fruits and produce, yes. Oranges. Numerous examples of that. And, uh, if there's a way that we can get around that problem through some genetic m- manipulation, I think we, we're going to have to do it. Our population is growing. Where our land that we can cultivate is not growing, so we've got to continue to get more and more production out of the land that we have. And as much as some people might not like the idea of that kind of manipulation happening, in some cases it can be very, very important. Right.
2: I, I, you know, we—if you're going to speak against genetics, uh, there is a, a flood coming, and the dike is not strong enough. No matter how you look at it, understanding genetics. And being able to do what you can to control things there is very important.
0: Well, so many foodstuffs now will, will have a sign, GMO, genetically modified. Mm-hmm. We, we guarantee it's not genetically modified. I don't know how they can because so many things have been genetically modified. Uh, you can overdo anything, and that's probably what people are concerned about. Right. But your example of the papaya is a perfect example of how important genetic modification has been in the ag industry.
1: And it depends on what you consider a genetically modified organism. Typically, at least from an organic standpoint, if it's incorporating genes that do not naturally occur in that family of plants or animals, then it's considered a a genetically modified organism. But just through traditional breeding techniques, we can insert a lot of new traits that can be very, very important in increasing
2: yield or disease resistance. I mean, we've been messing with the dogs since the time of immemorial. If we hadn't done that, we would all be hanging with wolves. They'd be kind of mean. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, we genetically modify and have been doing that from the, from the beginning. Right. Anyway. We
0: do. Well, while we were talking about that, we had one more caller with a question. I think it's a medical question that related to this that we, you could reply to, Dr. Holm. The person would like to know if uh, you can tell by a blood test if you have colon cancer. Would a blood test tell you this?
2: Absolutely not. No. You cannot tell from a blood test whether there's the presence of cancer. Now, if you have tested your stool for blood, that's a very good screening test. It's better than nothing. It's not as good as a colonoscopy. So let's just say if you're screening for cancer, there's one good way to screen for cancer. It's not 100%, but a colonoscopy is a really good way. Um, and checking the stool for blood is one way. But looking at the blood for cancer of the colon is m- terribly inadequate. Now, I would say this, that um, the, the, um, the uh, uh, person who has developed cancer of the colon will do a CEA, carcinoembryonic embryo- antigen test, and see if that marks the colon cancer. And if that is elevated in that particular person with colon cancer, it's not always elevated, and sometimes something else elevates it, so it's a crappy test for a screening test, but it's a good test for monitoring some people who have colon cancer to see if you've got rid of it. If you're, if you're treating it, particularly if you've got, you have colon uh, cancer that's spread and you're using a chemotherapy, agent and you see, okay, now the CEA, which was really high after this chemo, is really low. Okay, we hit the mark on that particular agent. So so
0: you can use it as a test as you're dealing with someone with colon cancer, but certainly not as a diagnostic test.
2: No, the ver- no question the best test for colon cancer screening is... A colonoscopy.
0: Well, while you're mentioning that, why don't you let us know what you believe is the right age for someone and 50. how often to have it.
2: Okay, a screening test would be every year, every 10 years after 50 until you're 80. All That's right. screening.
0: For colon, screening. colon test. Now,
2: let's say that you do a screening colonoscopy uh, or let's say there's blood in your stool at 40. You should have a diagnostic colonoscopy, which is you look at it to prove that you don't have colon cancer or 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 ulcerative colitis or other things by looking because there's blood in the stool. There's never a normal reason for blood in the stool. You do a colonoscopy. You make a diagnostic test of a colonoscopy. Oh, let's say I did that screening test at 50 and there were three polyps. Well, now I'm going to do not a screening colonoscopy in three years, I'm going to do a surveillance colonoscopy. Survey, surveilling, uh and monitoring uh, to make sure that I got all of the polyps and they don't, aren't returning. So there's a diagnostic colonoscopy, a surveillance diag- colonoscopy, and the screening colonoscopy. Screening is another story. One can talk about screening As a really good thing in some cases and and it's not necessarily a good thing when our tests are so crappy. You lost me on that last sentence. So let's say I'm screening for um, heart disease, right? All right. So a person perfectly healthy, 50-year-old male doing great, no problems, no symptoms, runs every day and you do a calcium indexing. We found that it's a crappy screening test. Because just
0: in general, screening tests aren't always the answer. Right. Screening with okay. the
2: CEA marker, screening with the PSA, prosthetic specific antigen test, that's a crappy test. It goes up with anybody who has inflammation. It is not always elevated when you've got cancer. So it's a crappy screening test. Oh, well, let us drive us... To do our testing, you know. So I'm going to do angiograms. I'm going to do radical or b- prostate biopsy.ing I'll do all this radical intervention. Sometimes that's not good for the patient. It d- does more harm than it does good. Uh, so it's the screening is a v- challenging deal. And that was a CEA test. But we should talk to David <laughs> more <laughs> about allergies. And we
0: will. Why don't we do that right after these words? And hey, welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. We're happy to have you listening today. Doctor Holm and I have a guest in the studio, and that is David Graper, professor so, of horticulture at South Dakota State University. And of
2: course, we forgot about, as the, as, as Bob pointed out, the screaming colonoscopy, <laughs> which means that you forgot the anesthesia, and, and you're uh, you did that colon. I've had I've had those done too. I've given a fair <laughs> amount of those back in the days when we didn't have that. But that's another kind of colonoscopy. Dave, talk to us about the. Uh, quickly about the other kinds of plant allergies that people can have in the summertime.
1: Well we often think about the weed allergies and the biggest one that people often consider is ragweed allergies which happen July and into August and especially when people see the goldenrod coming out they think oh my gosh that goldenrod I'm allergic to the goldenrod but it's not the goldenrod that just happens to be the big showy plant with its yellow flowers but if you look down six 12 inches tall is that ragweed and that's what's producing the bucket loads of pollen that really affect a lot of people and that's probably one of the worst pollen allergies for people to endure.
2: Well wow, isn't that interesting it isn't the goldenrod it's the ragweed that's, you know, lo- that's lower on the ground doesn't get as much wind but it it gets it out yeah, there. Pollen
1: in goldenrod is actually quite sticky so it doesn't get up into the air very much but people see that so they associate that with the allergy but it's the ragweed that's the real problem.
2: Wow. I like the idea of starting an antihistamine before the season begins. So if you're starting to get problems, certainly start now. One can finish at the the first frost. That's a general timing, although some people say it isn't the first frost, but that's a good timing Mm -hmm. mechanism. Tomorrow, we're gonna see an interview with you, which will be really great. And uh, we want you to watch the show tomorrow night. We have guest Dr. Mark Bubach who is a allergist from Sioux Falls. It's just Mark th- this time. And he's a kind of a quieter guy, so when you put put him with Tom Ozero or any other else other uh, person, he kind of gets You say Tom is
0: somewhat outspoken. Oh, Oh, I love Tom Lizer. He can talk,
2: but there's no question about it. Uh, Mark Buback is just fabulous. It will be a great show tomorrow night, and we get David Graper interview tomorrow night. So watch for that.
0: It'll be a great show. And tonight, today, we hope you've all enjoyed our Prairie Doc Radio program, and we'll listen again for Prairie Doc, brought to you by the Avira Medical Group, Brookings. Thanks, Doctor Holm, and thank you, Doctor Graper.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you, and welcome home again, Joan and. Thanks for all your help. David, you're a great guest. Thank you very much for that interview last night and stay healthy out there.